Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. Now, in a world where basic understanding of biblical ideas is on the decline, sharing the gospel with our neighbors has become harder than ever before. But what if there were a cultural phenomenon that we can use as a bridge to help our neighbors better understand the tenets of the gospel? And what if that bridge were Disney movies? I'm joined today by my brother and co-host of the Sons of Thunder podcast, Parker Sedeckes. And our guest today to discuss this fascinating concept is Dr. Ron Dart. Dr. Dart is the author of Myth and Meaning in Jordan Peterson. He teaches in the Department of uh, Political Science, Philosophy, and Religious Studies at the University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. He has authored or co-authored more than 30 books, actually 35 books, and he joins Parker and me for a very special Tuesday twofer episode of the Think Podcast to discuss Jordan Peterson, Disney movies, modern myths, and the gospel. So, Dr. Dart, Ron, welcome, welcome to the Think Podcast, and we are so grateful to have you join us today. Thank you. Oh, joy to be with you. So um, now you have written or co-authored over 35 books on various subjects. Why write one about Jordan Peterson and why now? Well, as you're probably aware, and I assume many of your audience are aware, Jordan Peterson has come on the front stage of larger cultural, religious, political issues, probably more than any other public intellectual in the last four to five years. And he's raised a variety of reactions from the political right, the left, from secularists, people from religion. But no one can doubt his prominence on the public stage. And I've had a variety of my students and, uh, who've been quite keen on Peterson, many actually who grew up in very conservative evangelical families, left their faith, but have been drawn back to it through Peterson. Many who have grown up in very secular backgrounds. And he's made sense, his articulation an interpretation of the Bible actually speaks very uh, meaningfully to them in a, a very existential, personal way, the way he interprets the biblical story in an ongoing sort of psychological, existential way. And so there's, there's a whole variety of ways for being interested in Peterson, but there's no doubt that he is probably the preeminent person on the public stage and people respond to him one way or another for good or for ill, but they do respond. Yeah, absolutely. Now, my brother Parker and I have discussed Jordan Peterson quite a bit. We actually are currently going through a series on 12 rules for life. And um, we've got this other sort of parallel podcast to the think podcast that we call sons of thunder. And, um, and, and that's where we get into more philosophical issues, uh, more cutting-edge stuff. And we've been going through the, the, the 12 rules. Um, and you, you alluded to this, but um, what, what is it about Jordan Peterson that has caught your attention, particularly as a, as a scholar? You know, I understand why he's so popular, especially with that age group of, you know, let's say 18 to 34-year-old men. But why you in particular 
Um, is this just something, did you feel like you had a responsibility because of his prominence and the kind of work that you're doing? Or is this a particular issue, a uh, particular interest to you personally, Ron Dart, at this, at this moment in your life? Well, there's probably a variety of reasons for the interest. I would say, first of all, the many students who come to me who are keen on Peterson. I've never had so many students in my 30 plus years teaching that want to do essays, want to do class presentations, want to talk in class about Peterson. So that would be very personal in terms of a teacher-student relationship. Uh, also very interested in the way because there has been a secular ideology which has tended to dominate certain elements of the university, plus a very trendy or progressive liberalism. Uh, he comes and essentially says to the Sanhedrin, the emperor has no clothes on. And that comes as an affront to any ruling elite um, because they're really elite like yaks. They circle their wagons. And when someone comes to question, to doubt, to interrogate, they turn on them. And so I always find it interesting, anytime you have a dominant ideology, uh, particularly at university and larger culture, of a form of progressivism, and someone comes to critique it, even though they claim to be about diversity and pluralism and openness, all of a sudden you, you, treat, you enter the holy sanctuary of this, they'll turn on you viciously. So what happens to tolerance, diversity, pluralism, all these uh, sacred words of trendy liberalism? And so Peterson is very good, at, and he knows that world because he's taught at University of Toronto. He's lived in it. So he's not an outsider talking about what's going on inside. He's an insider uh, who knows how to, it's like sort of a Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus with Jesus. They know the inside of the world, uh, and they know, its, uh, they know its ideology, what it will tolerate, what it won't, and who they reject, who uh, questions the Sanhedrin, as it were. So, I mean, liberalism is very much just a contemporary secular Sanhedrin. And if you don't fit within the dominant ideology, you're going to be treated as anyone who questions and interrogates the Sanhedrin of your time. I and so love, in that, sen in that, that sense, he makes for a very interesting intellectual figure who is a bit on the prophetic cutting edge of what's trendy but uncriticized in our uh, you know, educational culture, our pop culture, uh, and, and politics itself. Now, you, you said something, and I wasn't sure if you were making a Canadian reference that I didn't understand, but you said um, they're like yaks? The Sanhedrin is like yaks? Is that what you said? I heard you say that they circle the wagons. Yeah, so, I mean, that's what a yak does, doesn't it? When it feels its own is, is being attacked or threatened, they circle and protect their own. And so liberalism as ideology are like yaks, okay? It's like a Sanhedrin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they circle their own, they protect their own, and then the other which threatens them is seen as the enemy. So Peterson would essentially be seen as the enemy uh, to the Sanhedrin or the intellectual yaks who okay. stubbornly hold to a certain position and then protect the students which are the young yaks i love that imagery i had no idea about yaks i i didn't know that they did that that's that's fascinating so i live in the city of chicago and so if you had said something like rats if you said you know they're like rats i would have understood <laughs> or raccoons maybe but uh but but that makes perfect sense that imagery makes perfect sense um what as you were preparing this book authoring your own chapter, which we're talking about today, and, um, and 
bringing together the various contributors. And I actually have my my copy here. I'm holding it up. If you're listening on audio later on, I'm holding up my copy of Myth and Meaning and Jordan Peterson. And uh, so I do have my bona fides here. But um, as as you think back to this process, Ron, what was the best thing about editing this book? And what was the hardest part? Well, I think the best thing is we brought people together from various disciplines, philosophy, theology, exegesis, political science. Uh, and, and so it, it, just as Peterson is sort of a Renaissance thinker in terms of his breadth, so whether it's literature, he'll be keen on Dostoevsky or Nietzsche, whether it's you know, psychology, he's interested in Jung. Um, he, he, he approaches the issue of human meaning or the human journey from a very interdisciplinary perspective. So that was the goal of the book, first of all, is that we brought men and women together who knew how to think in an interdisciplinary way, even though they had a particular discipline or approach, sort of the portal they went into the cathedral of uh, Peterson's thought with. Um, so that would see the positive side. We were trying to think through his soul, through his eyes, in terms of how he interpreted the malaise we are facing at the present time and the diagnosis and then the prognosis he offers in terms of a path forward in the midst of a, a culture which has lost many of its cairns or markings on the human journey and then it leaves issues of identity and life direction very difficult if, if a person's cynical or skeptical about everything it makes it very difficult to make minimally meaningful choices um, in, in, in that sense. Um, probably one of the more, and I would say the other thing that was positive, uh, we brought people from various denominational backgrounds together. So uh, we have people from the historic church, people from variations of Protestantism, evangelical tradition. And so in that sense, it was a very ironical, ecumenical approach to um, approaching Peterson's thinking. Uh, and so that, uh, that, that was a very positive um, thing also. Uh, there's always the dilemma, of course, when you're trying to bring a thousand different things together is um, what is missing in the process, what could be developed further, what could be thought through in a more meaningful way. And so in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a springboard. It's a key in the ignition book for people who, one, are um, taken by Peterson want to think a little deeper about what he's up to and then um, can go for, uh, um, you know, further. So, for example, uh, his big work, Maps of Meaning, that came out in the 1990s is a far more sophisticated work than 12 Rules. It, you could compare 12 Rules like Erasmus of the 16th century. He could work very sophisticated works in exegesis, theology, creedal thinking, but he also could do his adages, which are little parables, little stories, or his colloquies. Tolstoy does the same thing, very sophisticated novels, but children's stories. So 12 Rules is sort of, one sense, like Peterson for dummies. It's, it, it gives you a door, a portal, but it's often been criticized by more sophisticated people by saying it lacks depth, it lacks substance. Well, at a certain point, you say, well, it's not written for an academic. It's, it's written for a certain audience, just as Erasmus's adages and colloquies, Tolstoy's children's stories. And the hope is that it will be a portal into the more sophisticated thinking if people want to do that. 
and he has his maps of meaning and his multiple lectures that anyone can watch on video. And if it's you're interested in the Bible, his works on Genesis and one of the chapters in the book looks at 12 of his lectures. Um, and so, and so it's, uh, there's, you know, when you look at what we would have liked to have done, it would have involved a much bigger book, but it's a primer. It's a little, it's a little boat that takes people across the water and then they can get into the bigger terrain of Peterson's thinking if they wish to. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that, that is one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is, is the eclectic nature of the authors and to be able to pull all those different voices together into a coherent work like this, uh, especially so concise. I mean, it's, it's only, I mean, it's under 200 pages, I believe, or, or pretty close. Uh, it's about, yeah, a little over 200 pages. And so um, it's, a, it's an easy read. It's a quick read, but there's a lot of depth to it. And, you know, Ron, your chapter on myths really did fascinate me. And Parker and I have talked about Dr. Peterson's, um, Jordan Peterson's view on myths. What is his view of myths? Why do myths matter? And could you talk a little bit about the two ways of knowing that he addresses um, when he talks about myths? Sure. Well, you've asked a few questions here, all very good ones. Um, first of all, there has been a tradition in Western intellectual, philosophical, theological thought that um, sees thinking as, as reduced to an empirical way of doing the senses, sort of logic, empiricism, mathematics, abstraction. And then you get elements of that, obviously, in Christianity, the creeds, the councils, theology is following one argument after another very carefully from premise, premise to conclusion. Is what you would, some, some would summarize it, what's called a logocentric way of knowing, a rational way, a cognitive way that speaks just to one side of the brain in that sense. The other way of knowing that goes back to Plato, and it's also fed through much of the Christian tradition, you get Jesus teaching in parables and stories, is what's called the mythic way of knowing, which appeals to the intuition, metaphor, literature, uh, and stories, narratives. And um, so these two ways of knowing, which can be at odds, but need not be at odds, so science has tended to focus on that rational, cognitive, empirical, objective way of knowing that can be verified and falsified through arguments or empirical experiments. Um, that's been called the scientific way. The other is the wisdom way of knowing in which myth and story and parable are very central uh, in terms of the search for wisdom. So one is about knowledge and information, which is very important. And the other is about wisdom and insight and transformation of people on their journey. And it need not be either or, but we have tended in the West to some way over-priorize or valorize the, the abstract way of knowing and subordinated the mythic way of knowing what Peterson is trying to do, and just not Peterson, he stands on the shoulders of many who have gone before him. He's consciously indebted to people like Carl Jung, uh, Newman, and of course people like Nietzsche. I spent time at Nietzsche's home in um, Sils Maria. There's a scholars in residence program. I did my PhD partially on Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra. I translated it from German. 
uh, to English. And so there's this whole mythic way of knowing that Plato writes about, the great Greek myth is about, uh, Jesus speaks in s stories and parables. He's not going to hand you a creed and ask you whether you sign the various elements of the creed or the 16th century confessions. Do you tick off each of the points? He's more interested in, in addressing a person's life and those shadow parts in them, those issues they don't want to address, but also the way forward uh, in terms of coming into greater and deeper light, self-understanding and being much freer as a human being. And myths are the means by which that can be done. And so a myth is like, well, like an egg. Sit on the egg and see what hatches, you know, for your soul. Uh, and so this mythic way of knowing um, it comes as a corrective. What Peterson certainly do is is is, is correcting an overly um, rational way of knowing with more imaginative way of knowing, intuitive way of knowing, literary way of knowing, metaphorical, which is also central to the Western intellectual tradition. But there's been a colonizing of that way by a more imperial, rational way, and he's basically saying. Um, this distorts what it, if you ignore the mythic, in fact, important elements of the soul and the world are concealed from us. So reason reveals much, but it conceals much. Myth unconceals often what has been concealed by a rational way of knowing. I don't know, does that make sense? It's part of the bigger intellectual heritage of the West and what goes on in universities and um, larger, larger culture. Parker, did that make sense to you about myths revealing what has often been concealed? Does that, does that jive with your own studies in uh, Jordan Peterson? Uh, Parker, you're muted. You, you're totally muted. Here, I'm going to try to un, unmute you. Nope, you're still up. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you had to unmute me. I was trapped in mute jail. Good. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, Ron, I, I wrote my, uh, my research paper on maps of meaning for, uh, for one of my religion classes here at TED's last semester. And yeah, I think you were hitting on it exactly. And, and we find that, that same you know, bifurcation in philosophy today between the analytic philosophers and the continental philosophers. And I've been impressed by Peterson uh, in his ability to kind of transcend that gap. And, and kind of live in between. And I, I think most people would find him more on the continental side, but I, I've seen him interacting um, kind of as, as Kant did, uh, you know, kind of started the, the split, but I'm really impressed by his ability to do that. Um, but I was really, I'm really curious in knowing what you personally think about Peterson's view of myth. Uh, from, from what I can take from Maps of Meaning, Peterson sees myths uh, as an important rung on the ladder of developmental um, uh, wisdom telling. And it starts from action, and then it's on this rung all the way up to religion, and then philosophy, and then science. Um, and, he, and he has an important place for archetypes. Can you expound a little bit more on, on archetypes, and then maybe give us your view as a Christian on whether you, you think that's uh, something that Jung's slipping in, or something that's actually... Um, makes sense within a biblical worldview? Well, archetypes, yeah, it essentially comes from the earlier clash between Carl Jung and Freud. And um, 
what Jung's, and of course, Peterson is very indebted to Carl Jung. He is read widely, and if you've done Maps of Meaning, of course, you pick up a lot of the Jungian, Jungian references. Um, Jung's position was, is that in the human soul, all of humanity has internalized the human evolutionary journey. And within that, there are deep truths locked within the human soul, almost the genetic code of the human soul, as history has informed our collective journey. And those are understood through stories. So at a popular, when most people think myths, they think falsehood, untruths. Uh, myths are just eternal truths wrapped in the garment of a story. And, and so once people uh, understand myth in that classical sense of, say, Plato's mythos and logos, or even John's notion of Logos, which actually John's, I'm just doing a series on the book of John, looking at how he brings together Mythos, Logos, and the whole Platonic tradition that's back of that. But yeah, so for, for what you also mentioned earlier is that Peterson's trying to bridge this positivist tradition that you would get out of a certain scientific perspective with a continental philosophy. I mean, his background isn't science, and so he wants to be faithful to that scientific way of knowing, while also arguing that particular approach conceals very important elements of the human journey, the quest for meaning, and myth reveals that to us. So in the latter of understanding, actually rationalism is at a lower level. Myth is at a much, we could say, deeper or higher level because it goes right into the soul and it evokes, it calls forth who we're meant to be and choices we can make which might damage us, but choices that lead to meaning and depth. And so these stories are given to us as a gift or an act of grace through the history of humankind. And uh, to the degree we know them, uh, we are transformed. But the problem we face today is, is the dilemma of memoricide. And so no memory. And so the notion, the liberal notion of history as progress often means why would we care about the past? Because it's an inferior way of knowing. Whereas Peterson and many people like Jung uh, would argue, no, in fact, the wisdom of the past once lost leaves people disoriented in the present and the future. And so he, in that sense, is recalling the great truths of the past in an age where people are very disoriented, not only in the broader culture, but in the church itself. Makes sense. Parker, did you want to follow up with that? You're still muted. I have to unmute you every time? This, why can't real life be like this? This is fantastic. This is great. <laughs> All right, you're unmuted. Well, yeah, Ron, so following off of that, that was awesome. Thanks for explaining that. Um, something that, that we want to talk about today was, was Disney films and how Peterson then traces this uh, mythic structure and these archetypes even through good Disney stories and how bad Disney stories are, are missing or uh, propagandizing. Um, can you explain a little bit of that? Well, I think for Peterson, given what I mentioned earlier, memoricide is probably one of the prominent cultural illnesses of our time. So most people, for the most part, are not raised on the Bible 
or Plato or Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas or Hildegard or Macrina or Luther, I mean, any of that, it's just not in their memory banks. So how are, how are truths conveyed to a post-Christendom, post-Christian society? Well, they're conveyed through the theater. I mean, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, these become the sacred text for a post-Christendom civil. Now, the Christian themes are very, very much at work in those three great works of Lord of the Rings. And if we had time, I could go into a lot of that with you, of Tolkien and Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, or his great work, Till We Have Faces, which is one of his probably greatest novels. Um, so for an audience that lacks no memory of these great works of literature, new sacred texts have come along. Now, people wouldn't call them sacred, but they convey those mythic truths in the theater at a popular level. And for people who actually stop to think about what's going on, they're getting those great truths of history passed on to them like a torch uh, being, being handed on. And so for Peterson, given the fact of memoricide, what is the means by which these great truths are conveyed well, Disney would be one, one means, uh, obviously, in a more sophisticated way. I mentioned you get Tolkien or uh, Harry Potter or Chronicles of Narnia or Lewis's Space Trilogy or many others. And so this is the, w this is the way our sort of postmodern, late modern people take in um, the truth because they see choices, decisions, consequences, Oh, so if I go down that path, there'd be dragons there. Or, you know, if I sit on gold, this is what the dragon, this, now I'm a dragon. Or, you know, you can go on and on. Or all wizards have a choice of going one direction or another. There's the elder one. Am I going to destroy it? Uh, or am I going to throw the ring in the fire? Or am I going to cling to it? So clinging to things that destroy us lead to our own destruction. It's as simple as that. And these myths convey that. So the Disney films for Peterson are means for a generation which is illiterate culturally and suffers from the illness of memoricide to echo those archetypes which are already given to them through human history. And it's a mirror. It's a mirror that, um, that reflects back depths to them they may not even realize there and it calls forth those depths for them and so this is what now obviously you have to go deeper than disney because disney is comedic in its ending i mean we met, uh, you know things like pinocchio or uh, stories like this and the real stories they're tragic the way they come to an end uh, and uh, this is why peterson will be drawn to nietzsche or uh, you know, Dostoevsky is they're willing to look at the painful, the suffering, the tragic side of life, and it doesn't always end happily ever after, as most Disney comedic of those two genres of literature, comedy, which is the happy ending, and tragedy, which we don't know how it's going to end. Um, and so, uh, but Peterson starts with where, I mean, any good teacher has to start with where people are. You, you can't jump over where they are, or you're talking into a void. And so let's talk with stories about stories that we know, and then we go further down the trail to more sophisticated places. But if people are at the station stop of Disney, okay, that's what they know. So we'll enter through that portal, talk about it, and then say, let's get on the train. We're going to go further down the tracks now to more sophisticated 
thinkers uh, in the great Western intellectual, philosophical, theological um, tradition. But you have to start somewhere. Any teacher knows you start with where people are at. If you don't, then you're talking, talking into a vacuum. Uh, so that's, I think, why he uses Disney strategically and in a calculated way but it's only a means he uses to get them to greater depth within their soul. So now Peterson's coming at this from a non-Christian perspective. Um, so he's, he's viewing these archetypes as being ingrained, as you put it, in our human souls or in our psyches, literally from millions of years of evolution. That's sort of how they've been ingrained in there. You know, putting my own cards on the table, I'm more of a young earth creationist and uh, certainly not an evolutionist, but even as I read Peterson and I see his approach to myths, um, he's really talking about timeless truths that are sort of ingrained in our souls. However they got there, we keep producing these stories, almost the same stories over and over. And so um, in the interest of time, I want to move the conversation along. Although, Ron, I think Parker and I could both, we would love to talk with you about this. Uh, like, you know, we could spend a weekend probably talking with, you know, we, we all go up to Nietzsche's old residence and, <laughs> uh, and just hash this stuff out for a weekend. Just talk right into the void. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but in the interest of time, because we're using Zoom and Zoom only has uh, as a certain, uh, like a 40 minute limit here. But um, can we just contrast or could you contrast for us two Disney films Pinocchio, which Peterson likes, and Frozen, which Peterson hates, which I know you think he's a little too hard on Frozen. Maybe you could hash that out as well. And then could we move from that then and get to the practical application of how do we use Disney films as believers as sort of a proto-evangelistic uh, tool? So that's a lot there, but, but, but have at it and, uh, and take us down that path, please. Okay, so Pinocchio uh, is really the story which to some degree has perennial relevance. Geppetto is the father, so you're talking about a single family. Many people experience that today. Um, but also any child that's raised in a home that's minimally responsive, mom and dad dangle them on strings of what they'd like them to be. You know, that's any parent of any worth or note that's minimally accountable to children. Uh, has ideas of what they hope the children will be, whether they become that or not. It's another thing. But the first few years, the formative years, um, I mean, Peterson is a psychologist also of child development, Piaget, Jean Piaget, and um, things like that. Um, so the, the earlier phase is, of course, Pinocchio uh, being dandle, dangled by Geppetto's strings as a marionette, as any parent dangles the strings of their child and moving them where they would like to be. The dilemma of that, of course, when a, when a child internalizes their parents' strings being dangled, as they often lack the discernment to make sense of their own journey, uh, because it's mom and dad pulling the strings. And so Pinocchio, inevitably, when he leaves Geppetto in the family, he's tempted to go by a variety of, of reasons. He cuts the strings of mom and dad, as many children have to do in terms of weaning themselves to become their own unique beings or individuating, as Jung would say. But because he lacks discernment, he merely slips into the 
trendiness of culture and he's dangled by their strings. So he goes to Pleasure Island and Honest John and, you know, uh, these people. So he's still in that sense, not free. He's still a product of just, just different strings being dangled. That's all. And so for him, in that sense, he's still a puppet, you know, and there's different ways of being a puppet and different strings that dangle us and keep, keep us imprisoned. And so Pinocchio's journey really is the story of what does it mean to be a fully alive human being? What Irenaeus would say, the glory of God is a human being fully alive or fully free. And Pinocchio, uh, in that sense, the story of Pinocchio is one, unlike the original Pinocchio where he dies because of his selfishness, his narcissism, his lack of sensitivity to other people. It's an Italian story. Uh, because this is a Disney one, it sort of adds uh, a little bit and changes it a little bit. But you get the death resurrection. And so Pinocchio, inevitably, uh, realizing where he has gone, of course, Jiminy Cricket is his conscience. And when he goes to Pleasure Island, of course, he keeps burying his conscience. But um, Jiminy Cricket is always there. And, and once he grows ears like an ass and a tail like an ass, he begins to realize he's become an ass. Not only is he dangled by strings, but he's, he's actually taking the form of what his soul has, has become. Uh, through Jiminy Cricket, the conscience, he finally uh, gets out of Pleasure Island. And it's the beginning of his story of finally, if you can follow the death resurrection motif, the, the, the whale swallows him. Now we're back in the Jonah story on that say you know, three days in the belly of a whale, the death to what he is not, uh, to his shallowness, to the pleasure island, to being dangled by strings, to being, well, he goes in search of his father, Geppetto, and of course, the other parts of the, the family. And finally, they're all spit up, but it looks like his father and the others, the fish and others, the cat are going to die. But he rescues his father, but he dies in the process. But in his death, it's then the blue fairy comes and resurrections and he becomes a live human being, a real boy. And so through, through his journey, it's the journey of anyone who wants to live fully, uh, moving from being dangled by parent strings, from being dangled by the strings of a trendy culture, through often like the prodigal son going down paths and realizing you're, in the, you're, in a, you're with the swine and the pigs or the ass in that sense to finally returning to something, almost an archetype within him and listening to, Jepe uh, listening to the Jiminy Cricket, to finally being willing to die so his father won't die, and at that point he resurrects. So you get the death resurrection motif as well in this one. And so uh, that Walt Disney movie, in one sense, is really just thick with the Christian story of the prodigal son, <laughs> the return yeah. of the son. The yeah. death for another, and then and then being resurrected, the blue fairy being grace resurrecting, um, and he becomes a live boy at that sense. And so, for those who don't know the Christian story, well, just watch Disney Pinocchio, and then you can just move very easily into the Christian story of how you know, in one sense, we're we're imprisoned by a false self, or what Saint Paul will call the old Adam. How do we become our new being in Christ? What's well, dying to the old self, resurrecting in Christ. Right. And uh, out of that, uh, we become who we're meant to be in a meaningful sense. So that's, that's why Peterson's drawn to that story. Does that sort of make sense? That, that makes a lot of sense. That's really great. I mean, I can, 
imagine myself in conversation with, uh, you know, with anyone talking about, well, explaining the gospel in those terms. You know, it's like, imagine Pinocchio at the beginning of the story. He's got the strings. He's sort of a slave to his passions. And, and, and how biblical that is. Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And, and through this death and resurrection, he's made his true authentic self, what he was really even, even greater than he was actually even created to be. You know, he was born into this world a puppet, and he actually is able to transcend that through this death and resurrection. Uh, just really, really good. So, yeah, no, I know I, I appreciate you bringing that to the practical application of the, um, you know, the evangelistic conversation there as well. Yeah, Ron, I wanted to jump in. Um, so, so Joseph Campbell, uh, another, another union, talks about the hero with a thousand faces. And uh, our father is, a, is an author himself. He loves writing all sorts of short stories. And he always told us growing up that every good story has to have life, death, and resurrection. I'm pretty sure he got that from Campbell. Um, Campbell, do you do you see that as is is the Christian meta narrative life, death, resurrection, consummation? Uh, is that the great narrative? Is that God's meta narrative, or is that overplaying our hand too much? Well, I think the dilemma of anybody on their all too human journey, as Nietzsche would say, is their Torin. They're torn between a false self, which they think will give meaning, as it's swollen appetites, it's turning to a variety of things for purpose, which only betrays them, and as St. Augustine would say, just leaves them restless. And then a deeper part, which is the archetypes, which um, that takes you to what the patristic fathers would call the image and likeness of God. So a lot depends on what what source a person is drawing from in terms of their search for meaning and then where they go to fulfill that longing for meaning. Um, uh, but there has to be the death of the false self, but you never die to your true self. Some people confuse you have to die to yourself. Well, you only die to what you're not, the false self, the old Adam in that sense. Uh, but that new being, the image and like, if I had a chance, we could get into patristic anthropology here in terms of their notion of the diamond and the, the mirror. Um, but that could be perhaps for another, uh, another time. So you die to what you are not, and that which is deep down then bursts forth into life. And so it, it resurrects from the ashes like the phoenix in, say, Harry Potter. There's the dying, and then out of that, the new being emerges. Uh, but yeah, so what your father is saying, I mean, obviously a lot of um, uh, truth to that. Any great story deals with a person's usually to some degree indulgent and misunderstood self coming to a greater awakening of what life is about, letting go and releasing what they're attached to, which is usually the ego above all else, which attaches itself to external things, uh, uh, dying to that, and then out of that, the resurrection motif. And that's the Pinocchio, that's the Christian story, that's Gandalf dying as he meets the Balrog, going deep down, resurrecting, he goes from the gray to the white. Uh, you can look at Harry Potter dying, resurrecting. It's the same, it's the same story that's found in all the great, all the great um, Aslan has to die. You know, he resurrects and comes back. Narnia turns to spring. Um, yeah, so for sure, that's, that's the Pinocchio story in a more, in a more sort of uh, benign, benign, attractive, evocative manner. But certainly Joseph Campbell, as you say, deals with all of that. Um, 
the difference between Peterson and Campbell is Campbell will tell the story. Peterson as a psychologist is very interesting, almost as a pastor applying the story to people's actual journeys and self-understanding. Um, Peter, uh, for Campbell, it's just, well, you know, just follow your bliss. Well, you can define that any way you want. It's very, it's very uh, individualistic and relativistic. For Peterson, he would say, no, you just can't follow your bliss and be anything or use a, a myth any way you want. In fact, there's deep truths here. You violate them, then you lose your freedom. You know, you misuse freedom, you lose it, essentially. And myths give you the framework within which meaningful freedom can be lived. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it does. And one of the, the chief examples my, my father used for us was Jackie Chan movies. Oh, he yeah. Said, look, look, Jackie Chan's got to take a beating first, and then he'll come yeah. back and get the guys. But, yeah, you know, that, that was the problem with Superman. Uh, before there was kryptonite, before you can weaken him with the sun, um, the hero has to go into battle. He has to go on his hero's journey. He has to, you know, be wounded and, and resurrect. Um, Joel, before I kick it back to you, Ron, I would love to do this again and, and talk about uh, the Inklings and, and Lewis and Lewis's view, uh, Meditations in the Tool Shed, his two views of, yeah. of truth sound uh, yeah. right, right in line with Pearson. So we have to do this again. This would be awesome. Sure. If you ever want to pick up the torch or get on the horse and see where we, where we run. You were also just wondering about the um, Frozen. Yes. I, I, think, I think one of the reasons... Perhaps Peterson is a little negative on it, uh, is that, as you're probably acutely aware, there is a certain form of feminism which tends to demean men, that sees men as the problem, that sees men as the brutes, that sees men as insensitive yeah. boars. It was Gloria uh, Steinem, I think, who said, uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so good point. So there, there is this cultural ethos that dominates in some places in which men are the buffoons, insensitive boors, uh, and women have been marginalized, they've been mistreated, they've been victimized. And so it's this sort of dualism. Now, the heroes in Frozen, of course, are women. Uh, so you get Anna and Elsa. And so Elsa has to work with uh, power she doesn't have know how to deal with in that sense. And so it's really the story of her understanding through love how you deal with gifts in that sense, but you don't yet have the character, the ability to know how to deal with them. And it's Anna who is there constantly uh, assisting her in that process, who often gets marginalized in the process as part of it. And that's what you're mentioning early, the struggle. In Greek myth, the agon is everything, okay? Any hero has to face struggles, challenges, disappointments, betrayals. The mark of a weaker person is the retreat in the midst of pain. So you get Luke Skywalker because of the, for example, all the Jedis he trained who turned on him, he retreats to the island in cynicism. And it's only Rhea who comes and gives him the, uh, which is really just Excalibur, the sword and King Arthur, that's mm. all, uh, gives him the sword. And uh, he, he's paralyzed by his, by his cynicism. And there's many men today who are, are many ways because of the critique of a certain type of feminism, they feel impotent. They don't know what to do there. Um, and I think for Peterson in this movement, the dominant um, protagonists are women. 
and the the men the men such as Kristoff and and Sven the reindeer and Olaf this I mean they play their roles but the other men are are you know whether it's Hans or others uh, they're betrayers they try and take over the kingdom and so the men in the movie are either second rate or ineffectual or their character lacks minimal virtue so I suspect for Peterson, um, he, he may be overreacts, but there's some truth in his concern, is that it looks at women in a purely positive light, romanticized and idealized, and men are very much, for the most, seen as second-rate or conniving creatures uh, that uh, are all mostly vice. Yeah. Doesn't he also take issue with the idea? He puts a lot of stock into the idea of the masculine being associated with order and the feminine being associated with chaos. And so in your traditional story, like a Cinderella or your Sleeping Beauty, you've got Prince Charming representing order, uh, rescuing the, uh, the damsel in distress, representing chaos. And you've sort of got this harmony, of, which, you know, I mean, he's, he's approaching this from sort of the yin yang philosophy. I'm, I would look at that as uh, a metaphor of, you know, that's repeated in Christ rescuing his bride, dying to save her. Um, you know, so the, the, the masculine, I mean, Jesus, uh, you reference in your book, C.S. Lewis points out that incarnation transcends myth just as myth transcends thought. And so um, I kind of see these, these classic Disney tales as, as pointing towards the transcendent truth of the incarnation and the gospel um, what, what do you think of his critique there that there's no masculine counterpart in Frozen that provides a, uh, a stabilizing or salvific um, counter element to the damsel in distress that is, you know, Elsa when she gets frozen or, or whatever. What do you think about that? Well, I think perhaps, too, one would be, in his own way, Kristoff, you know, is a, a bit of a redemptive figure. And then, of course, sure. the, the healers are the trolls, the grand pabby. Now, whether they're males or not, you can, you can tinker, around, sure. tinker around with that one. Um, the underlying theme, though, of Frozen transcends gender in terms of character, giftedness, uh, each person, whether male or female, needs to learn to love others, as Anna did her, her sister, who um, was born to be, in that sense, a queen, but did not know how to deal with her abilities properly. And it was love in the long run that uh, um, assisted her. And that's in a sense, Anna is grace. And who is Anna in the Bible? Well, you just have to read your New Testament. Anna literally means grace. So. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so there's, in a sense, the themes in Frozen transcend gender. The way the actors are positioned in the play, it can look a little bit about a bit of a pro-feminist track, but if you cut beneath the gender question and go to the perennial themes of what a great myth is about, uh, as you have to do with any great myth, then it's perennial in its story of overcoming misunderstanding. The two sisters are separate, initially kept in different rooms, and the story of reconciliation at the end, the kingdom is restored at the end, 
so it's, I mean, it's a typical Disney movie, but the themes, the themes in it trend, transcend gender in that sense. Uh, but if you get frozen on the, if you get frozen on the gender question, then I can see Peterson's uh, somewhat hesitant concern and uh, he often gets a lot of laughs when he trashes it, which perhaps is a bit unfair. I think if you, he is a, a sort of a mythographer in that sense, should know you don't have to do that. You look at the great story underneath the gender stuff. Uh, but I can see his concern given the cultural ethos we're in. I'm, I'm hearing that uh, even despite the makers of Frozen's attempts to really inject this, uh, pro-feminist narrative they they still couldn't get away from these deep biblical truths no, no. Uh, which which underlie so uh so there you go i mean god's let god be true and every man or uh feminist be a liar i guess um, well you know in, in christian thought you have i mean you can go back to the earliest churches that engaged greek culture roman culture celtic culture indian culture the notion of common grace yeah and really, common grace is just archetypes. <laughs> you know, that's what Young is talking about in archetypes. Huh. It's the notion wow. of natural law, common grace. That that is there in the depths of each and all person. Paul talks about it in the first, you know, couple of chapters of Romans that the truth is built within within everyone. Or Jesus and John enlightens everyone who comes into the world, and so they still bear the image and likeness of God. And that's just common grace. So if you if you just decode archetypes into common grace, then the movies we see at Disney they're just tapping. They're just common grace that then. Uh, can be enriched and turned into something obviously more explicitly Christian. So what is implicitly Christian, the Christian tradition then makes explicit. Okay. So we've got to wrap up in a few minutes here, but, um, and I hesitate to say that because as soon as I say that people stop watching, but the, the, where the rubber really meets the road, which, which um, this is really something that I, I was reading. I, I wish you had fleshed out more at, at, but you put it in right at the end of the chapter, and that is this turn toward evangelism. And so we did talk about it. We talked about it with Pinocchio. I think that's great. Um, is there? Can you give us sort of a quick and dirty approach when we're when we're looking at these modern myths, these popular myths like the Disney movies or like a Jackie Chan movie or something like that? Is there a, a quick and dirty way for us to approach these films? these stories, extract the gospel message, and then use that in our pre-evangelism or in our evangelism, what, what would be a couple of questions we should be asking of the story? What are one or two elements we should be looking for in order to, to become better evangelists and getting the gospel out? Well, I think uh, when you watch any of these movies and you're sitting with someone over a drink or you go for a coffee or whatever you do and you start talking about it, you start asking, what is it about that film which was meaningful to you? And inevitably in that discussion, the archetypal themes will start coming out. And then once you start talking about those archetypal themes, then you're really into the Christian gospel. Uh, and so allowing, I mean, as in the early Christian tradition, they talked about the Logos Spermaticos, the seed of the word was in everyone in seed form. And so it just waits for the sun and the light of uh, the meaningful Logos or speech or interaction between people 
to be the light and the warmth that opens up that seed in the soil of their soul so it will truly become the plant it's meant to be. So the seed is already there. It just awaits us as mediators of divine grace to be God's light and warmth, uh, to breathe, uh, to breathe, um, to breathe through discussion, questioning God's spirit, uh, working with us, uh, breaking through that seed of their their potential new self in Christ and opening it up. And these great stories are all seeds in that sense of the divine logos or common grace in that sense which is implicit christianity that people who chat with people you know from these stories can say i mean tolkien for example lord of the rings the three books are are he knew we lived in a post-christian world so he's telling the christian story in lord of the rings in an implicit way I mean, even the three books are the Fellowship of the Ring. Well, this is you have people from different backgrounds. What's the story of Acts? I mean, here you have elves and dwarves and men, and which are normally they don't talk or ethnic groups or denominations and well, no, there's a bigger issue we're facing. You know, it's Mordor, uh, and Isengard itself has betrayed its wisdom. So. First of all, the fellowship, so the overcoming of differences in ethnic groups, denominational backgrounds for the greater good. The next one, then, is the two towers. Well, what happens when the Tower of Truth, Isengard, uh, betrays, gets betrayed to Mordor? Well, where, what, um, who are the wizards now, or the wise people, and who comes together? And then, of course, the, the return of the king which is, of course, the, re the, return, uh, the return of Christ. But how did Aragorn, he comes across as a servant. His whole work is, I mean, he's born to be a king, but when we meet him and through much of it, he's just a ranger, you know, living, living in the midst of the backwoods, as it were, serving, and no one would know he's the king, <laughs> but he's disguised. Uh, he is a servant. And so the servant king, but at the end, he's seen for who he is. It's like the transfiguration. You know, most people see Christ when he was alive, and then finally right. the disciples, he's transfigured. Okay, so what is concealed is revealed, same with Aragorn in that sense. So when you talk to people, when I'm in classes, I find out what movies they've gone to see or, you know, what books they're reading. And then I ask, well, so what are the themes or what kept you, you know, enjoying that movie what were the themes and they start oh i see well these are great eternal themes so let's now continue down that road and see us to what see what cathedral it takes us to super super good ron thank you so much for this insight uh, i can't believe we have to um we have to wrap up here but just um so for for our listeners for our viewers who want to take this study further. I mean, obviously, I'm recommending your book, Myth and Meaning in Jordan Peterson. Um, how else can people, are you on social media? How can people follow your work, follow your thought, maybe even get in touch? Well, let's say I have a website called the High Tory Reader. So if they just tap on High Tory Reader, they'll see all of my stuff. Well, actually, a lot of my courses are now online just because of COVID. So you can look at my ideology. I'm doing a thing on the Book of John, um, Western Peace Traditions, a whole range of courses. Many of them are a bunch of my essays are up there, one on Nietzsche and Heidegger. Um, you can look at that. Um, so if you just look up Hi, Tory Reader, there's also the Clarion website. I put a lot of Brad Jerzak and I. I don't know if you know Brad. 
Uh, he's doing a lot of very creative work in theology and Christotelic uh, thinking, and so um, how you deal with violence in the Old Testament and, and things like that, penal theory, the atonement, eternal punishment, how do people, if they take the text seriously, deal with these if you start with a God of love. Um, and so uh, Clarion website, Clarion Journal, um, you, I have a whole range of um, articles, podcasts on that. Then, um, as you mentioned earlier, I've published 40 books, so um, you can always look at those as it was well. 30, it was 35 when this book came out, and this came yeah. out last year. Yeah, I've done another four since then. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, but we can always do other podcasts if you wish. or uh, Love to. Do a Nietzsche weekend or a Heidegger Nietzsche or whatever you're interested in. You know, love these to. are wonderful things to discuss. And yes. the culture we live in, thoughtful people are, you know, trying to make sense of their journey in an age which, in many ways, the old markings and cairns are gone. But the longing for meaning doesn't disappear just because we destroy the maps of meaning. God has put eternity in to the hearts of men. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Ron, thank you again for joining us. This has been a special episode of the Tuesday Twofer. I've been joined by my brother Parker, fellow co-host of Sons of Thunder. Um, I got to give Parker a shout out because this week he launched his podcast called Parker's Pensies. And if the the mispronunciation of that French is grating on you like it grates on me. You need to check out his first episode on YouTube because he explains why that is. So go to Parker Sedeke's on YouTube. Check that out. He does explain why he just absolutely obliterates and butchers the French language uh, in that way. Uh, he has, let's say he has, a, he has a decent reason for doing so. I don't know that you could ever have an adequate reason, but for as far as reasons go, it's, it's taken fine. way too long. It's fine. <laughs> um, it's well, not he's, picked, he's, picked, he's picked a good person in Pascal, so he can't go wrong. That's right. That's right. Um, connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute. Get all of our back catalog of episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And you know what? This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I certainly hope that you found something that has been useful for you and something that you can put into practice the next time you go out and share the gospel with your neighbor. I know I have. I know for me, I'm already looking at the High Tory Reader website. Check that out. Check out the work of Ron Dart. We're going to have him on the Think Podcast again. And that's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think. <laughs>